If uh, I may ask of you to show reverence to the reading of God's Word, to please stand. We're going to look at 1 Samuel, and we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2, and a few other places in the Bible as we move quickly. But we're going to read down to verse number 11, and I will lead us in prayer, and then you can be seated for the next 35 minutes or so. Now there was a certain man of Rephmathim Zophim of Mount Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Johoram, the son of Joham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tuyu, the son of Zoph, and he was an Aphrathite. In other words, a Levite from a place in an area called Bethlehem. And so he had two wives. It was okay back in those days. The name of the one was Hannah, and the other was Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. So this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice. That's where they went was from Bethlehem to Shiloh, which was about 17 miles. And the Lord of hosts, as they went into Shiloh, uh, was there. And uh, he had a couple sons by the name of Hophni and Phinehas. And these were priests that were to serve the Lord. Now notice in verse number 4, And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Paniah his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversaries, that would be Benina and her sons and daughters, her adversaries, provoked her sore. For to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so, year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, Why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not, am not I better to thee than ten sons? That's a husband for you, huh? <laughs> so Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli, the priest, sat upon a seat by a post of the temple of the Lord, and she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall fall no razor 
or there shall no razor, excuse me, come upon his head. Father, bless our time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, the Hebrew name for <clears throat> Hannah is Chenina, and it just simply means one who is favored of the Lord, one who has the grace of the Lord upon them. But it doesn't look at this, at this point that God's grace is upon Hannah. You sometimes wonder, well, why does God name these children these names? And God many times had a part in naming his children. And God had a purpose, and sometimes it takes a while for God's purpose to be revealed. I just want to say this, it has nothing to do with our message, but Jesus has a name for us in heaven. And whatever your purpose in life was, if you fulfill that purpose, uh, then that is the name that you're going to carry with you in heaven. If you do not fulfill that purpose, then who knows what that name may reflect. Because it will reflect your lifestyle and your character. And we talked about that last week, and we'll talk more about it next Sunday when we get back to the book of Revelation. Now, <clears throat> during the time that we just read, it was called the time of the judges. And the time of the judges began around 1367 B.C., it lasted for about 330 years until Samuel came along. There was a total of 13 judges, and Eli is the last of those 13, or he is coming up uh, to bring in the last of those 13 judges, Eli being the 12th, has now anointed Samuel. Samuel is going to be the last of the judges. He is the first of the prophets. So he is not only a judge, and he's not only a prophet, but he's also going to be a priest. And God is going to use Samuel to anoint King David. And it's through the loins of King David that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be raised up, for which David is a picture or a type of. And so <clears throat> she, Samuel plays a very important role here in the history of God's word. Now for 330 years Israel was not led by a king. Uh, they wanted a king. They wanted to have uh, the same kind of rule the rest of the nations had, which at that time was mostly a monarch type of relationship. But at this time and for 300 years, they had been ruled by God, as we refer to that rule as a theocracy. But according to God's plan, God allowed them to have a king to rule over them. They chose the man they wanted, and later God gave them the man he wanted. The story that we want to emphasize is what takes place with Hannah. Hannah is barren, and she's barren for a good reason. She's going through a time of testing. Did you notice year by year they would go, and year by year, Penina and uh, her family and the children would mock, and they would tease her. 
And there was a reason for that, and Elkanah was the reason for that. He created a lot of problems that uh, could have been avoided. But in all of this, God has his purpose. And Hannah wanted a child. She didn't want one child. She wanted many children. Back in those days, it was a blessing to have many children. When the womb was fertile, that was considered a blessing. Today, women don't want that blessing. The Bible says in Psalms 127 and verse number 3 through 5, Lo, that word lo doesn't mean that God's flying low on the earth. It means a wonder. It means, hey, I want you to give some special attention to this. It's like, lo, I am with you always. Uh, wow, what a wonder to know that God is with us always. But there's conditions on that. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and then, lo, I am with you. So he says to the mother, lo, here's the wonder. This is a blessing. Children are a heritage of the Lord. I want you to notice the Bible says there in Psalms 127, verse number 3, that Children are a heritage of the Lord. Inside the womb, outside of the womb. They're a heritage of the Lord. They're not called children after they come out of the matrix. They are children while they're inside the womb. The Bible makes it very clear that the child that is in you, his name shall be called John the Baptist. And... Uh, <clears throat> John, inside his mother's womb, was filled with the Spirit. So, lo, children are heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Sometimes we forget that. Well, I, I don't want the reward. I'm going to destroy that reward. The Bible says, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children in the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. So you see, when men went hunting in those days, and they usually hunted with bow and arrows. And there was a quiver that would hold the arrows. And they didn't go out with one arrow. They didn't go out with two arrows. They didn't go out with three arrows. They went out, I mean, to get a lot of game. And so they made sure they had plenty of arrows. And so happy is the man that's out hunting, he's got plenty of ammunition. Happy is the man that has many, many arrows in his quiver. Happy is the family that has many siblings. Um, I, I, you know, this a day and time where there was a day and time where Large families were praised. Now today they're scoffed and looked down upon. I can tell you that firsthand with my own family. Go off with my daughter and son-in-law and there'd be sometimes people, are all these from one couple? You know, and I had someone walk up to me one time when we were starting a church over in Ukaipa, and he said, did you ever teach your daughter to say no? And I said, what do you mean no? And then he looked around at the children. I said, you know, every one of those children are precious. Amen. I said, I want to ask you, how many children do you have? 
And he said, well, I don't have any children. I said, you know what? I feel sorry for you when you get old. You're going to be a very lonely old man. And that was the greatest rebuke I could have ever given to him. He just looked at me like I'd shot him in the heart. The Word of God makes it very clear <clears throat> that the problems that we find here in this home of Elkanah was brought on by Elkanah because of the favoritism that he showed to just one person. Uh, jealousy can be a rage and it can be a very, very serious problem. Here was uh, a, a wife that wanted children and in God's time he will give her children. And here was another wife that was very jealous and she was jealous because of the jealousy that her husband had created. And there was tremendous conflict in the home. And uh, we don't put all the blame on Elkanah, but we understand that he, he created much of this. We have to be careful that we do not show favoritism. So we, we have four lessons here, and the first lesson is the lesson of favoritism. Again, I need to remind you by reading what we just read Verse number three, and this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, these were his children, portions, but unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion. So they saw what was going on. It created an adversary effect within the home. Hannah was desperate to have children, but she was barren. She did not understand, and sometimes we don't understand, that the children that God has given to us are the children that was in the heart of God before those children were ever born. And she had no idea what God had in mind. We, we don't have any idea what God has in mind for us. And I've heard people say, I wish they would have never gotten married, and they got three or four children. Their marriage has been a mess. They should have never met. Well, wait a minute. They have three or four children. You say they should never have brought those children into the world. I just think that it would have been better that they would have never gotten married. You're saying, well, God didn't have a plan for their life. God didn't have a plan for those children. It, those children were not ordained of God. Those children were not formed of God. They were formed of them. And, uh, and them and the man, that's a big problem for my son or for my daughter, whatever the situation may be. Be careful that you never go there. Jeremiah made it very clear in chapter 1 in verse number 5, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Did you see that? You hear that? You understand what that means? Before conception, before you were ever conceived. I remember years ago, we were hiking up in the foothills, and Mackenzie and Justine and Nolan were with me, and we were sitting on the hill praying over the valley, and McKenzie was about seven years old. I believe Justina was probably around five or so, or maybe four, uh, 
six, and Noah was just a little guy about, or Nolan about five or so, or whatever, and, you know, younger. But anyway, we were sitting there, and, and just out of the blue, Mackenzie said, Grandpa, when Mom and Dad get, got married, where were we? And I said, when mom, your mom and dad got married, where were you? And I said, you weren't even in existence. You weren't even thought of. <laughs> they said, we weren't even thought of? And I said, no, you weren't even thought of. You didn't even exist. And they started crying. <laughs> no, Grandpa, no. I said, no, that's true. <laughs> but the Lord knew them. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. God has a purpose. Sometimes we fail to realize that it takes time for God to reveal that purpose. And Hannah was desperate, but in God's time... Not in her time. He will fulfill what it is and reveal what he wants to do. Penina, well, she longed for her husband's love. She loved, she longed to be loved as Hannah is loved. Now we see this time and time again through the Bible. We see it with Isaac and Esau. Uh, and Jacob understood that Esau was loved more of his father than he was. Anyway, the whole situation, Rebekah loved Jacob more than she did Esau. And it caused a division within the family. And we also see it with Jacob with his son Joseph. I mean, they hated him. They, they wanted to actually kill him. Though because of the jealousy and because of the favoritism, we as parents never should ever go there with our children. I remember I had this associate pastor up in the state of Washington. His name was Jim St. Pierre, and he said, uh, my grandma used to tell me that I was her favorite grandson. And then one day... I was talking to one of my brothers, and, and he said, well, Grandma said that I'm her favorite grandson. <laughs> and he's talking to his youngest brother, and, well, Grandma told me. <laughs> they were all Grandma's favorite grandsons. <laughs> we should never have any favorites. They should all be our favorites. So the Word of God makes it very clear that our Heavenly Father has no favorites either. Makes it very clear, he says in Deuteronomy 10 and verse number 17, that the Lord, your God, is the God of gods, the Lord of lords. He is a great God. He is a mighty God. He is a terrible God, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He treats us all the same. He rewards us all the same. He is no respecter of persons. We need to be careful that we do the same. We follow Him. And then we move to the second lesson, the lesson in brokenness. Hannah 
was a very broken person. Notice in verse number 10, and she was in bitterness of soul, and she prayed unto the Lord, and she wept sore, and she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thy handmaid, and remember me, and forget not thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. She was so torn up and so afflicted by not having a child, she said, Lord, if you just give me a child, I'll give him back to you. Just please give me a child, and I'll make sure that he's dedicated unto you. I will make sure that I dedicate him to be a Nazarite unto you to serve you all the days of his life, to be separate from the world, and not to touch those things that are defiled, but to live his life separated from the world and separated unto you. So Hannah's brokenness caused her to cry out to the Lord. We find that... uh, She later says this in chapter 2, beginning at verse number 1. As she prayed, she said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. My horn, that is her strength, is now exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because, why? I rejoice in your salvation, your deliverance. There is none holy as the Lord, there is none besides thee, neither is there any rock like our God. She could praise the Lord because in her brokenness, God was able to use what life was spilled out to fill that life. Before our lives can be filled with the blessings of God, sometimes it has to be broken and spilled out of our humility, of our pride and our arrogancy and trusting in ourselves and we get to a place where we are brought very low in humility and brokenness and once we are spilled out then God begins to fill us up with his blessings and all of a sudden a mouth that was closed and the lips were drooped down all of a sudden her mouth was open wide She's smiling. That's what it means by my mouth open. She's got a big smile on her face because the Lord has enlarged her mouth and put happiness within her soul. She had made a promise to God and God fulfilled his part of the deal. Now she needs to fulfill her part of the deal. We need to be very careful when we promise God something that we're willing to carry through what we promise. I've had people tell me, preacher, if God delivers me from this situation, you'll see me in church every Sunday. I had a lady years ago in the church that I pastored in the state of Washington that had ovarian cancer and she was going through chemotherapy and she says, if I get, it th- if I get through this, pastor, you'll see me every time those doors are open, you can count on that. Well, finally, the cancer was in remission. We never saw her again. You don't make promises to God like that. We have couples come forward and tell death do we part. 
And uh, it doesn't last until death do we part. They discovered after six years of marriage that they don't love each other anymore. Or one of them finds out that there's a better model out there. You know, I'm going to trade this one in on something much better. And they forget that they made a promise to God. You know, marriage vows are very important when you come before God and you promise. That's why we have marriages in the church because we want it to be in the house of God. That's why we have a minister stand and he performs uh, those wedding vows because it goes in line with what we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. That minister is like the angel of the Lord and the Lord says, don't you come to me later and say, hey, it was all a mistake. I didn't mean it. I was there. The minister was there. He was a witness. I'm a witness. You promised before those witnesses. You promised before that angel. And you also promised to me. That's why we make very clear in those wedding vows, do you solemnly promise before God and these witnesses that you at all times and in all circumstances will conduct yourself as husband and wife, to love and to honor until death do you part. Please say, I do. And I've always, in my counseling, I say, if you can't say that, then what you need to do is find someone else to do the wedding. You'd probably be best to go to the justice of the peace. And he'll ask, do you? Yes, do you? Yes, done. And you're out of there. <laughs> Because <clears throat> vows are important. Why is it so important? Because God, when he makes a promise, it's important to God. You see, God swears to his own hurt. He made a promise to us that he'd give us everlasting life. And to his own hurt, he went to the cross. He died for us. He shed his blood. Satan did everything that he could to close death doors and keep him shut in. But there's nothing that can hold down the body of Jesus Christ when the Spirit of God is upon him. And God raised him up. And the shackles of death was broken. And the promise was set in iron and in gold and established forever. And you and I can stand upon Jesus Christ. He is the rock of our salvation. The assurance that we have a home in heaven. Because we have a risen Savior that made promise to us that He would go into the presence of God. That he would pour out His blood on the covenant, on the mercy seat of God. And that we would have an entrance before our Heavenly Father that would be acceptable because of His holiness and His righteousness. And He would never leave us nor forsake us. He would espouse Himself unto Himself and that we, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, He would never forsake us. He would never divorce us. He would never cast us out. He would always be there because His promises are forever. They're always yes, they're never no. And so He says to the church, I want you to do the same. So they understood it was very important. He said, even to Israel in Malachi chapter 2, I hate the writing of divorce. It was never given by God. It was given by Moses. And it was given by Moses because the hardness of men's hearts. 
God said, all right, Moses, I'll allow you to write it because I know some of those men, if it's till death do they part, their wives will live a very short life. <laughs> and that's how cruel man can be. But God wants us to love our wives until death do we part. You see, God never commanded the wife to love the husband. He commands the husband to love the wife. And if he's faithful in loving his wife, and then that love will be returned back to him. That's a whole different message. We'll park there some other time. But when you make a promise to God, he says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. The Bible makes it very clear later in life. If you try to excuse it, he says, well, wait a minute. You shouldn't have been so rash with your mouth and so hasty to make a promise if you're not willing to keep it because there are going to be consequences as a result of it. Broken promises do bring consequences. Well, we must move on because of time. There's a lesson we find here called purpose. You see, Hannah believed God at his word. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse number 20, Wherefore it came to pass when the time was come, about after Hannah had received that she bare a son, she called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. She understood why God gave her that son. She understood God's purpose for that son. She asked God for a son. She said, God, I believe the purpose for this son is for him to be a Nazarite, to be set apart unto you. And if you'll give me that son, then that's what I'll do. God has a purpose for every mother in raising their children, and it's to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's your purpose, to be a godly mother, to, to make sure that you direct your children in the way of righteousness. And by the way, fathers, you play a very important role in that. You're not to provoke them to anger or to wrath. We work as partners in bringing about God's purpose. God's purpose is that every one of us who are Christians would raise up a godly seed. Just as Israel, according to what we read over in Malachi chapter 2, God made it very clear that divorce and all of these problems that come as a result of divorce can somehow convolute that godly seed. God wants a godly seed. God needs godly parents. God needs faithful parents. God needs godly wives that will live godly lives to set a godly example. These things are important. This is God's purpose. Before that purpose can come, like I said, there's got to be brokenness. When there is brokenness and we're willing to be used of the Lord and spent of the Lord, when we cry out to God and ask God for deliverance, God intervenes. Many times during our brokenness is when we make our promises. I've made promises during times of brokenness. God has a purpose for those brokenness. Because he brings us to that place to where there's a surrender. 
All right, Lord, I surrender. What is it you want me to do? You know, God had to break Saul. And so he knocked him down. He took away his eyesight. There was brokenness. And finally, Saul said, Lord, what would thou have me to do? And he said, well, I want you to go on into Damascus, and you're going to meet someone there. And after time, God gave him back his sight, and he was willing to do what God had purposed for him. You see, many times in that time of the valleys of sorrow and the valleys of, of God's discipline, uh, He brings us to a place to where we're willing to say, All right, God, I surrender. I give my life to You. I'll serve You. I'll live for You. If You'll just deliver me from this situation, if You'll help me out, then Lord, I make a promise to You. He wants us to come to that place where we are surrendered. And so she comes to that place. She knew what God had given her that now she needs to let what God has given her. She needs to let him go. She knew that when she let this young child go, he would be in a place of security. I, I tell you, there have been many times in my ministry where I've had young teenagers want to go to the mission field. They want to serve God. They want to give their life completely over God. God has done something in their hearts, and He stirred up their hearts. And they go to their parents and say, you know, I don't want to go off to this university. I know you've been saving up for me to get a great college education, to get a degree in technology or whatever. But God has called me to the ministry. I want to be a preacher. I remember this one father told me, I didn't raise my son up to send him off to some Bible-thumping college to know nothing more than just the Bible and to go to some mission field and start the rest of his life. I raised up my son to make a living and to take care of himself. He's not going there. Well, I, by the way, that man didn't live very much longer after that. He died of a stroke. His son never ended up, he, he ended up with his life in a real mess because rather than following God, he followed the wishes of his father. We have a greater responsibility when God calls. You know, Jesus made it very clear that sometimes we have to leave father and mother, husband and wife, houses and lands to do God's will. I think of Brother Matheny, his father felt something similar like that. And Brother Matheny said, no, God's called me to be a preacher. And his father had a hard time with that for a long time, but eventually Brother Gary was able to lead his father to the Lord. Amen. We have sometimes make hard choices. And so Hannah had to make a hard choice. Year by year, they would go up there to Shiloh, and she would stay back with her son. She was nursing him. And finally, back in those days, they nursed him until they were about four or five years old. And so here's a five-year-old child. Now he's finally weaned. And she takes her five-year-old son up to Shiloh. Now, Eli was a man of God, but he was a compromiser. Because he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. 
And he would not take a stand and say, you know what, you sons, either you straighten up and you do right, or you get out of Shiloh. And what they were doing, they were robbing the people of the offerings. When they would bring the offerings in, they would boil it or soothe it. And after they soothed it, the meat would be tender. And they would take a three-hook claw and they'd grab a hold of the meat and pull off enough food for themselves. And the Lord said that that was all they were to take. But they said, I don't want you to soothe the meat. They would take a knife and they'd cut off a large portion of the raw meat because they liked to roast it. And many times they took more than what they needed to take and they told the people, if you don't give me that offering, you will pay for it. And God became angry at Eli and he said, I'm going to rip you from the priesthood and your sons and your sons' sons will be completely wiped out and your name will be remembered no more because you tolerated what your sons were doing. And I will raise up Samuel to be that priest. And Hannah was turning her five-year-old son over to that situation. But she made a promise to God. And every year, she would go visit him. She'd make him a little coat, and she'd take that up there to him. Year by year, she was trusting God to take care of her son. You have to say that Hannah was certainly a mother of faith, wouldn't you say that? A mother of integrity. She made promise to God, and she said, all right, Lord, I'm going to trust you to take care of it. And the Word of God makes it very clear that later she could praise the Lord. And here's what she said. In chapter 2, as she's praying unto the Lord and she's praising the Lord, she says, The Lord maketh poor, and he maketh rich. He bringeth low, he lifteth up, he raiseth up the poor out of the dust. He lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill. He set them among the princes. He makes them to inherit the throne of glory. For the pillar of the earth and are the Lord's. He has set the worlds upon them. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. He shall give strength unto his kings. And he will exalt the horn of his, of his anointed. The horn was in reference to the power and the strength that she understood that God's going to do something special with my son and God's going to lift him up and God's going to anoint him and God's going to use him. She had great faith and she had a great testimony and she's praising God for his goodness. She's also prophesying. She's also prophesying God's going to use my son to do something great and something wonderful. One day he's going to anoint a man by the name of David. And David is going to be a great king, and God's going to give the David great strength. And then one day from the loins of David, God is going to raise up his only begotten son. And his only begotten son will raise up the dead. His only begotten son that holds the earth up by his pillars. And by his strength, he holds the world together. His son is going to reign and bring down the enemy. Wow. Sometimes we fail as parents to realize that our life does count for the future. 
there's the souls of men and women that through our seed and through our children that God is going to use our children to raise up. And one day when we stand at the Bema seed of Christ, there'll be a host of people that are brought into heaven because of a mother's faithfulness to rock that cradle for the Lord. What's interesting about what she just said here, we find that there is another powerful lesson. And that is that God is now going to have the final word. You see, God will never allow our sorrows to have the final word. God is always faithful to bring about His purpose when we patiently wait upon the Lord. As we look to this passage, we understand that there's something more that uh, is later quoted by another servant of the Lord from the words that we read from Hannah. I want you to notice again in verse number 10 of 1 Samuel chapter 2 that Hannah said, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall the thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth. He shall give strength unto the kings and exalt the horn of his anointed. You see, she was talking about what God is going to do with his family in the future. The whole family is going to be brought back together. There'll be no adversaries. We'll be one glorious, happy family in the Lord. There'll be no adversaries to try to tear us apart. Uh, we'll all speak one pure and holy language, and we'll live with the Lord in the house of God forever and ever. And our home in this old world needs to be a picture of that heavenly home. I want you to notice what is said over in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse number 8 and 9. Zephaniah says, Therefore wait upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Now underscore verse number 9 of Zephaniah 3. For then will I turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one consent or to serve Him in one accord. You see, the prophetic application here that both Zephaniah and Hannah were speaking of was concerning what God is going to do in the last days. The church is a picture of that, by the way. We understand when we go back to Genesis chapter 11 and verse number 6, the whole earth spoke one language. They were all unified as one people. But they were being used of the devil. 
we notice something interesting said in verse number 6 of Genesis chapter 11. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So God said, what can we do? Well, God said, we need to go down. We need to confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth. But you see, in the last days, God's going to bring about a pure language. God's going to bring us all the way back to the time of the beginning when God gave man one language. But this language will be a pure language. There'll be no division, there'll be no cussing, there'll be no swearing, there'll be no bitterness, there'll be no hate. It'll be a pure language, a language of love. And the Heavenly Father will lead over His house. And the whole family of God will dwell together in one accord. Now let me just kind of bring this down to where we're at. You're a member of the body of Christ. On the day of Pentecost, part of that was partly fulfilled in Joel 2, where the Holy Spirit came down upon the apostles. A multitude of Jews from all the various nations of the earth were all gathered on the day of Pentecost. That was the true Pentecost. Every year they would celebrate Pentecost. But in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost fully came. Underscore the word fully there. Fully came. The Holy Spirit came down upon those apostles and everyone understood in one language what they were saying. And they were all saved that heard and were baptized and added unto the church. And God has said to the church, I want unity. I want you to speak one language. I want you to speak a pure language. I don't want bitterness. I don't want hate. I, want, I don't want to hear those things that defile. I want you to forbear one another and forgive one another and love one another. I want you to take it into your homes, husbands and wives. As Christians, I want you to speak a pure language. I want you to be in one accord. Church, I want you to do the same. Because we're a picture. He says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 31, I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's a great mystery. But it shouldn't be a mystery to us. Our homes can be a mystery to the rest of the world, but it's not a mystery to us and it's not a mystery to God. We live our lives faithfully unto the Lord. Let me just bring it to a practical closing here. As the Holy Spirit came down upon the church, they all drank of one spirit and they all became one body in Christ. We're all one body in Christ because we've all drank of one spirit and that spirit is Christ. And we drink of that spirit the moment we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding that He died for our sins and He was buried and He rose again. We invited Him into our hearts and the Spirit of God comes into our hearts and now we have drank of the Holy Spirit of God and God has given us a new tongue. He's put a new heart within us. We speak a new language without cursing, without bitterness, without cussing. Our homes 
should be a place where there's one accord filled with love. Amen. You know, we don't read of these problems after Hannah's rejoicing. Paul said in Colossians 3 and verse number 12 through 14 that we are to put therefore as the elect of God holy, put on as the elect of God holy and beloved bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. Then he might have a quarrel, even as Christ has forgiven you, so we are to forgive one another. Of one accord, that one accord comes through that one faith. We all come together through the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in Hebrews 12, Wherefore, seeing that we are compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight of sin that doth easily beset us. Let us run the, the race with patience, or patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Every day within our homes, every day within our marriage, every day in this church, we come together through the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. What makes this place so glorious, what makes this place such a blessing to be, is that we come together and we glorify our Savior. Jesus Christ said, I want you to exist to glorify me. We glorify Him through showing love and working together in unity that we might go out and reach others and thereby many can be saved. And herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. That fruit begins in the home. The church is no better than what our homes are like. Good preaching, Pastor. One thing that we forget is patience is what got her there. She had to endure trial. She had to do infliction, but only for a season. And when it was all final, when it was all done, through her brokenness, God was able to bring rejoicing into her heart. She prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. Isn't it wonderful when Jesus Christ does something in your heart? You're broken, you're spilled out, and all of a sudden you're filled up with the glory of the Lord. And the sadness and the sorrow that you once bore turns into a great smile, and you can look at the gates of hell and smile because greater is he that's in me than he that's in this world. How wonderful is that? We need to make sure that we bring that into our homes with every head bowed.